Broadcasting live from the Raiders practice facility at the Intermountain Healthcare Performance Center. This is the premier destination for an inside look into the Las Vegas Raiders. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor. Presented by Tequila Embajador. What's good, Raider Nation? Welcome back to Raider Nation Radio 920 AM on a Tuesday. Uh, happy to have you. Um, back to our normal time. Uh, good luck. I think the uh, Aviators are playing at home tonight. Um, they're starting a uh, 12-game series. I can't wait uh, to go check out uh, the Aviators. And um, I, AAA baseball is really, really cool. And if you haven't been out to the ball field or the ballpark here in Las Vegas, which I haven't been inside yet, but I have been outside. It's just beautiful. Las Vegas ballpark uh, right in the heart of Summerlin, which is a beautiful area uh, here in Las Vegas. And um, it's just, I I can't wait. I can't wait to go check out uh, a game. By the way, to let you know, uh, remind you guys, uh, if you're in town Fridays, every Friday night uh, over at Michael T's Steakhouse um, here in Las Vegas, Aloha Fridays, uh, it's a, uh, a little party that they're throwing from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. every Friday night over at Michael T's with Embajador Tequila. Live Hawaiian music from 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. And then a karaoke with a whole, you know, uh, uh, segment with a, a Hawaiian DJ from 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. Uh, Michael T's Aloha Fridays, it's back um, and uh, better than ever. Really fun to see everything opening up here in Las Vegas. We went out to a great dinner last night uh, on the Strip, um, Mott 32. Oh, my goodness gracious. Some really, 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 really good Chinese food uh, at the Palazzo Hotel. Um, so uh, go check that out. But, uh, but for sure, Friday nights, every Friday night, Michael T's from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m., uh, Hawaiian music and karaoke, Hawaiian DJ. It's a lot of fun. So, uh, uh, Damon, I think that you had pulled up Bill uh, Barnwell's uh, article, kind of assessing what went right and what went wrong for teams. This is basically a um, a uh, exercise in. I mean, you're just literally throwing darts up on a wall. Who 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 knows what went right and what went wrong until games are actually played. I know we're all asked to do this by our editors. Uh, fortunately, I have uh, some some really sound and intelligent editors at the Las Vegas Review Journal, and we understand. Like you can, you you give your analysis, you give your you know try to be as objective as possible on on you know what's happened and what's happened to this point. But to call anything what went right and what went wrong is really something that you have to wait until games are actually being played to really assess. You know, to say Kenyon Drake is what went wrong with the Raiders offseason, you know, if you want to say that it's, you know, uh, doesn't make sense or, you know, might have been a reach or something like that. Yeah, I get that. But what went wrong? Ah. You know, but ESPN does what ESPN does. I respect uh, all my colleagues over there. They're sometimes asked to do things that they don't necessarily agree with, but somebody's asking them to do it, so they do it because their editor is asking them to do it, and it gets clicks and all that good stuff. Um, but, you know, so right off the bat, when I hear what went right and what went wrong for an offseason, I got to say, based on what? <laughs> based on what exactly? But anyway, Bill Barnwell did his exercise in um, throwing some darts up against a wall and seeing if any of them stick 
and we'll find out what went right and what went wrong for Bill Barnwell, I guess, by the end of the season. We'll be able to go back. As you, I'm, I'm wondering if anyone's going to do an article on what went right and what went wrong with what Bill Barnwell wrote about what went right, what went wrong for the offseason. But anyway, uh, Devon, why don't you uh, take it away from here and read what Bill Barnwell said, what went right and what went wrong for the Raiders offseason so far. All right, here we go. What went right? This is behind the ESPN Plus paywall, too. So, you know, shout outs to me for, you know, taking the dive for everybody out there in Raider Nation because I know most I got people mine. don't. You should have told me. You should have told me. <laughs> I got kidding. I got one. I'm kidding. All right. What went right? For the third consecutive offseason, the Raiders finally fixed their defense. This time around, they didn't let the draft picks they've been counting on stand in the way. Cleland Farrell, Jonathan Abram, and Trayvon Mullen are among the players who aren't guaranteed starting jobs after the Raiders signed Yannick Ngakwe, Carl Joseph, and Casey Hayward. They have spent years importing talent on defense and failing to get the most out of their additions. A problem new defensive coordinator Gus Bradley has to turn around. And that's what went right. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't get the sense that Clee Farrell is in danger of losing his job. But I digress. Uh, who else did he say uh, isn't guaranteed a spot on the uh, in the starting lineup? Jonathan Abram or Trayvon Mullen are not guaranteed starting spots. Yeah, it's, again, I mean, I understand where he's going with it, but Trayvon Mullen is pretty much set at his spot. Now, if you want to say Damon Arnett isn't guaranteed his spot, that's pretty obvious. But see where I'm saying? Like, this is why I say sometimes, you know, uh, some of the national people just fly around on, in helicopters. Now, I don't expect them to know everything that's going on with the Raiders. I don't know everything that's going on with the Baltimore Ravens right now. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just kind of seeing things and seeing some tweets and whatnot. But to say that Trayvon Mullen is not guaranteed his starting spot as if he's fighting somebody for that job right now, or Clee Farrell for that matter. It's just, it's, so right off the bat, I'm like, okay, you know, so go ahead. It's just not accurate, but go ahead. All right, and that was went with what went right, and now on to what went wrong. While contracts for Ngakwe and John Brown were relative bargains, the Raiders inexplicably handed Kenyon Drake a two-year $11 million pack to serve as a second running back alongside first-round pick Josh Jacobs. Las Vegas also dismantled one of the league's most impressive offensive lines by trading away free agent addition Trent Brown, star center Rodney Hudson, and homegrown guard Gabe Jackson for mid-to-late-round picks. The team used a first-round pick on Alex Leatherwood to help replace the losses. But just about every public source regarded to the Alabama tackle that was overall drafted at number 17. Let me see if I read that right. But just about every public source regarded the Alabama tackle. Yeah. An overdraft. Excuse me. That's what I was missing out. Yes. Every source regarded him as an overdraft at 17. Yes. There we go. Teams have more insight into prospects than we typically do. But given the the Raiders' recent track record with draft picks, they don't deserve any benefit of the doubt. Okay. So um, he said any – what was it? The public sources? Yes. Okay. So basically – basically, he's referring to the Mel Kuypers and the, the analysts. Those are now the sources. Those guys are the sources. It's it's like it's 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 weird to me that you know Mel Mel Kuyper is a source. He is he's got a job just like we all do. That he's an analyst is what he is. He's a journalist, really. He's a media member. Media members aren't sources. Um, now, if you want to talk about 
a you know former general manager that is on the radio, um, you know somebody like that, I put some credence into. But from from everything that I heard, the the criticism of the Alex Leatherwood um, you know uh, draft being an overdraft was by again just media analysts. So to cite them as sources, I would never do that. I would never do that. I would f- flat out say, hey, you know, uh, based on you know. If you're going to say the the national TV pundits uh, that they felt that was a reach, that's one thing. But to use them as as credible sources, I, 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 I think that's I think that's a mistake. Number one, number two, I've heard had people within the NFL tell me that Alex Leatherwood was a perfectly fine pick, especially for the Raiders, and that um, he wasn't getting past either the late first round or very very early second round. So. Anyway, so uh, I, I, again, I, and I, this isn't really pointing a finger at Bill Barnwell, but to but to but to say that that's just saying that public sources, i.e., and he should have said this, i.e., Bill, you know, guys that are in the media criticizing the pick. I get that there's criticism of the pick. There's that's fine. That's completely valid and completely um, within the realm. That's what that's what happens. Uh, but to, to cite them, quote unquote, as sources. Uh, they're not sources to me, that's for sure. Next up, we have what they could have done differently. And boy, this one is a doozy. Bradley was regarded as one of the league's most promising defensive coaches when he took over at Jacks- as Jacksonville coach in 2013. But his defenses haven't been consistent even when he has had the talent to work with. Bradley's Chargers defenses ranked 10th in each of his first two years with the team, but they fell to 25th and 20th over the past two seasons. His Jags defense ranked in the top half of the league just once in four years and improved in the season after he was fired. Should the Raiders have made the call to the ultimate turnaround expert and hired Wade Phillips? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, Wade, that, that would have been a fine hire with Wade Phillips, uh, but I think that his system with the 3-4 probably wasn't um, you know, in line with what the, what the Raiders wanted to do, and I just feel like uh, John Gruden's familiarity with Gus Bradley. I mean, he basically gave him his uh, first. He did give him his first NFL job, and the track record that um, that Gus Bradley has had over the years. Uh, a couple observations from my own, uh, you know, perspective. The Chargers' defenses were good. You know, they were ten, ten, and what do you say, twenty and twenty-five. The twenty and twenty-five defenses. A lot of that. Um, I mean, there were a lot of the, the Chargers suffered a ton of injuries uh, defensively. So you kind of have to account for that. Prior to that, when they were healthy with Gus Bradley, they were a really good uh, defense. Number two, that Jacksonville defense, it's interesting because he was part of drafting all of those players. He just wasn't able to stick around long enough for that to all kind of come to, to fruition. So um, a lot of the a lot of the success of that Jacksonville Jaguar defense was ultimately, um, you know, players that he was in charge of drafting as the head coach and had a big voice in all that, especially defensively. Now, secondarily to all that, I just always find it kind of conspicuous when you take out one of the best parts of a guy's career just because you you have a little bit of a narrative that you're going with. Did Bill Barnwell forget what Gus Bradley did in Seattle, for instance? You know, that's where he really made a name for himself, and he completely admitted that. He just talked about what happened in Jacksonville, and he talked about what happened most recently in Los Angeles, which for, you know, um, on 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 balance – 
what he did in, in Los Angeles was was pretty strong work. And I think the Raiders would absolutely take 10, 10, obviously, and 20. Uh, shoot. At this point, you know, 25. I mean, last year was just – last year was the bad year. And last year, I mean, he didn't have Derwin James. There were a lot of players that – Missed time uh, last year for the Raider or for the for the Chargers, so you know that that kind of falls into it. But again, you know, I just me being somebody that covers this team on a on a daily basis, there were a couple of things, and I see this all the time. I used to, you know, when I first kind of started getting back into covering the NFL with the move to Los Angeles, with you know, obviously the Raiders and the Chargers and the Rams, everybody was trying to fight for, for Los Angeles. And then the offshoot to that was the Raiders turning their attention to Las Vegas. The things that you would read sometimes from some of the national writers who weren't involved in it on a daily basis. I had to be involved in it on a daily basis. Three teams were trying to come to the city that I was a, a sports writer in. And that was my story. I was, for my paper, that was what my beat was. Who's coming to Los Angeles? Why are these three teams angling to come to Las Vegas? Is it feasible? What's going on with the stadium situation in Carson? What about the one in Los Angeles or Inglewood with the Rams? <laughs> Get to know all these people. All of it, you know, you have to start making contacts and sources and all that, trying to get into their head. What is this? What are you guys trying to do here? You know, all of that. And you you working it on a daily basis. Then you would hear read some cockamamie stuff from somebody nationally that you're like, wait a minute, that's not even close to being accurate. It was really, really, really eye-opening. And again, I don't I'm not passing judgment because I would be the same way if I was trying to pass judgment right now or or analyze sitting where I'm sitting right now, the Baltimore Ravens or the Pittsburgh Steelers. I don't have much of an insight into the, either of those two teams. I cover the Raiders. That's who I'm, you know, most uh, sort of, you know, not in tune with, but that's that's who I have the most command of. I know the roster. I know their backstories. I know their draftings. I know they've got source, all that kind of stuff. Um, so to, to, for, for Bill Barnwell to say that Trayvon Mullen is in danger of losing his job, I don't get the sense of that. I don't think anyone gets a sense that Trayvon, now, you know, maybe halfway into the season, he's not playing uh, good football. I don't expect that to be the case, but anyone can lose their job, but I don't think there's any kind of a presumption that Trayvon Mullen is in, you know, a fight for, for his job. If anything, He's been one of the most consistent players on the Raiders' defense the last couple of years. He's actually played fairly well, and I think that going into year three, he's got a chance to take a big step forward. So that in itself, you know, uh, it, it's, it raises some red flags. Like how, what, how much research did this writer do uh, in, in, in making his assessments? And so – and the Kenyon Drake thing – I think once t- people see – now, this is on John Gruden. This will be on John Gruden. He understands this and how you know he utilizes Kenyon Drake. Uh, but I think the vision that he has is a lot like what the Cleveland Browns uh, are doing um, with, with their two running backs. There's, there's teams around the NFL now that, that have a 1A, 1B setup at running back, and it's just kind of how football is, is going. There's not a whole lot of teams – where you can say that, you know, that's the guy and he's going to get, you know, 300 carriers or whatever the case might be. Uh, I think more and more teams are kind of trending in the, the by committee kind of a, uh, kind of a, a, a model. However, you want to do it 
if you're going to have a little bit of a committee, if you're going to have a, a rotation, you want to do it with the best players available. So you, you're going to invest in getting somebody or two guys that are that you feel are really good. And I know the Raiders really, really like Kenyon Drake and what he brings to the table in terms of what he does that are similar to Josh Jacobs so that if Jacobs comes off the field or vice versa, they feel like they have a guy that they'll have a guy on the field that can do what they need to, uh, to, to, to be done from that position because there's some things that they do very much alike. But there's also enough subtle differences in skill set that you're going to be able to utilize the guy a little bit more differently when that guy's on the field compared to that guy. And then on top of that, you're going to have situations where they're on the field together and then they're truly complementing, complementing each other uh, as, as weapons. So, you know, the money part of it, I think, is fairly meaningless because, number one, like we mentioned earlier, the big portion of Kenyon's, Kenyon's uh, contract is paid out next year when, oh, by the way, have you seen the, the uh, expectations for where the salary cap floor is going to be next year? It's in the 200s, I think, up from you know, uh, where, where it is right now. It's going to go up a lot, more than people thought which is not a shock. Remember the TV contract uh, that, that was just recently signed and the 17th game that was added to it? Yeah, that's all going to help uh, that salary cap get back where it belongs after uh, going down the way it went down last year because of COVID-19. So they structured it in a way where they're going to be able to absorb the big hit of Kenyon Drake's contract in a season where the salary cap is more conducive to being able to swallow that. So uh, they did it in an astute way. Even the signing itself was done in an intelligent type of a way from a financial standpoint, on top of the fact that I think he's going to fit like a glove here with the Raiders. And I think John Gruden has some high, high, high uh, hopes uh, for him. And it's not a surprise to me that Bill Williamson, um, who covers the Raiders and um, you know, does a good job of staying on top of the, uh, of things. He has Kenyon Drake in the tier one group of Raider newcomers, defensive end Yannick Ngakwe, safety Trevon Morig, uh, running back Kenyon Drake. And what he says about Kenyon Drake in particular is the Drake move is big for the Las Vegas offense. He gives it another dimension. And Bill Williamson is exactly right. Tier two, uh, according to... Uh, Bill Williams's article, Bill Williamson's article, and you can go read it at silverandblackpride.com. Cornerback Casey Hayward, wide receiver John Brown, tackle Alex Leatherwood. Remember, this is tier two. In it, um, Bill writes, I was tempted to put Hayward in tier one. I don't think he's an elite cornerback. I agree with him on that. He's getting a little up there in age. But I think the Raiders have big plans for him, and he will be one of the most impactful New additions. Cannot argue with that. Brown has a chance to have a Nelson Aguilar role in the offense. And Leatherwood, the number 17 overall pick, steps in as the starting right tackle. There is a lot of impact here. And here being these three players. John Brown, um, it'll be interesting with John Brown because I think that Bill is absolutely correct. There could be a Nelson Aguilar-like role for John Brown in this offense. 
the question that I have, and I think it's a good problem for the Raiders to potentially have, is, okay, that's fine. If, if you have a, a Nelson Aguilar, if you're going to be able to replace the uh, production that Nelson Aguilar provided last year, boom, with John Brown, who comes in on a, at a much uh, more uh, inexpensive contract than what Nelson got in New England and tap, tip of the cap to Nelson Aguilar for getting that money, he deserves it. John Brown comes in at a cheaper price tag. My question, though, is what if Brian Edwards takes a big step forward? What if Henry Ruggs takes a big step forward? You know, does that mean – where does that leave John Brown? It's a good problem to have. John Brown has been a productive player in the NFL. He's going to have his moments here with the Raiders. Um, I think he's going to put up numbers with the Raiders. The Raiders' offense, remember, and the quarterback in particular, Derek Carr, kind of a point guard type quarterback. He's going to spread the ball around. Derek Carr is a very smart quarterback. You can say what you want about Derek Carr, and there are uh, segments of Raider Nation that do all the time. I don't agree with a lot of what they say. Uh, I don't think he's been the problem whatsoever. In fact, I think there's he's part of the reason why they won the games that they've won, just straight out. Um, and I think one of the biggest assets that he brings to the table, especially now going into year four in John Gruden's system, is a command of this offense. And understanding where the ball goes and getting to the line of scrimmage, sizing the situation up and making sure that he takes advantage of whatever the best matchup is on the field. And I think that when you start talking about John Brown, when you start talking about um, Henry Ruggs and Brian Edwards and obviously Darren Waller and Foster Moreau and Kenyon Drake and Josh Jacobs, Willie Sneed and Hunter Renfro. There is going to be, on any given down, no matter what the offense, or excuse me, the defense is trying to do, there's going to be any number of places to go with the football next year. There really is. And remember last year, talking to, talking to uh, uh, Derek Carr, and he was absolutely right in his assessment, and this is during training camp. It's like, man, I leave the line of scrimmage, I leave the huddle, I'm thinking, I get to the line of scrimmage, and I'm going, all right, you want to do this? I'll go here. You want to do that? I got this. I look around at all this talent. I'm like, whoa. And if anything, the talent might have increased since last year just by the natural evolution of some of the younger players and some of the new additions and Foster Moreau getting healthy. Derek Carr said that in training camp. The Raiders scored the 10th most points in the NFL last year. He saw what he saw and understood what he had to work with. I think it's going to be even better this year with Kenyon Drake and those guys. So um, we're going to get back to this. So, but, but my question is with Don Brown, how does he fit in if Henry Ruggs and Brian Edwards take the expected big step forward? Not a bad problem to have, is it? You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila Embajador. Interact with the show. Text Vinny at 69187 or tweet at him at Vinny Bonsignor. This is In the Huddle with Raiders beat writer Vinny Bonsignor on Raider Nation Radio 920 AM.
What's good, Raider Nation? Welcome back to Raider Nation Radio, 920 AM. You are in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila Embajador. Uh, just to let you know, because I get this a lot, um, and rightfully so, where can I get Embajador Tequila? Uh, well, if you are in uh, the Las Vegas area, Liquor World, uh, XO Liquor, uh, obviously Michael T's, um, those are those are a couple places where you can pick it up. Plus, if you were to go to uh, uh, Alianto Casino, Gold Coast uh, Casino, Suncoast uh, Casino, um, those places also uh, um, serve uh, Embajador tequila. So uh, there's any number of places that you can get Embajador tequila uh, out here in Las Vegas, Samstown, uh, Las Vegas, Eastside Can- uh, Canary Casino and Hotel. Um, so if you're at one of the casinos, at any of those casinos, uh, including Aliante Casino and Hotel and Spa, um, be sure to order uh, Embajador Tequila products. Uh, or if you're, you know, like I said, um, you know, some of the liquor stores out here uh, as well, uh, they've got you covered. So uh, ask for Embajador Tequila. And trust me on that one, I love tequila. You know I love my tequila. Uh, Embajador Tequila is top-notch, and uh, they're just great people as well. And that's, you know, doing business and all that kind of stuff, um, it's one thing. But being able to have a friendship and respect and all that, uh, and uh, Les Kekahuna, um who uh, is is part of the ownership group uh, at Embajador Tequila? Huge football fan, incredibly smart uh, football fan too. Uh, I mean, he he talks like a coach. He is a coach, basically. I learned a lot just listening to him and talking to him about football. But uh, those are some places where you can go get Embajador Tequila. Uh, back to uh, talking about Bill Williamson's article. I really enjoyed it, by the way, and you can catch it at SilverAndBlackPride.com. And he listed uh, the Raiders new additions by tier. Uh, Just to uh, quickly run over what we've already talked about, Uh, tier one was defensive end Yannick Ngakwe, safety Trevon Morig, and running back Kenyon Drake. Uh, I think the Ngakwe and uh, Morig additions right there in tier one make a lot of sense. Um, I think Ngakwe and Morig are going to have pretty much instant impact in a positive way. I think Yannick Ngakwe changes the whole dynamic of the Raiders' pass rush, and it extends their depth chart. It extends the rotation. It deepens the rotation. It puts more talent on the field. It puts more bite into the Raiders' pass rush. It allows Max Crosby to use in a way that better suits his talent. Um, It allows, you know, Clee Farrell to start drives – Downs, I should say, uh, at defensive end, he could slide back to, into defensive tackle and rush from that place, from that position. Um, you know, whether you want to put Max Crosby, uh, you know, off of his hip, or Yannick Ngakwe off of his hip, or maybe it's Malcolm Coons uh, or Carl Nassib. Uh, the point is, the Raiders are going to be able to dip into a rotation that enables them to get more efficient, effective pass rushers on the field in key situations. And I think Yannick, uh, it starts with Ngakwe. So that was Tier 1. Tier 2 was cornerback Casey Hayward, wide receiver John Brown, tackle Alex Leatherwood. Uh, I think Alex Leatherwood, obviously, is the uh, foregone conclusion as the starting right tackle. 
The Raiders drafted him with the 17th pick overall with high expectations. Uh, this is the former Outland Trophy Award winner, started three years at uh, Alabama. I think he was part of two national championship teams, was an All-American last year, um, was the anchor of the best offensive line in college football. Don't believe me. There was a vote, and Alabama was voted the, the number one, the best offensive line in college football. Um, was he a reach? Well, you know, I guess Bill Barnwell thinks he's a reach, and Bill Barnwell's public sources, i.e., you know, the national pundits out there and analysts out there, I'm not trying to knock these guys. I'm just saying that they don't, yeah, they break down film, but they're not looking at it <laughs> the way the scouting department and the coaches and the general manager and everybody else in New York with the Giants or Jets or the Pittsburgh Steelers or the Kansas City Chiefs or the Las Vegas Raiders or the Los Angeles Rams, they're not looking at things from those teams' perspectives and drilling to the middle of the earth, as we've talked about, the way those, two, the way those teams do with their lens leading the way and their coaching staffs uh, articulating what they're looking for in a player, what they need in a player to uh, fill a role in this kind of scheme or that kind of scheme. They're just, they're just not. I'm just going to leave it at that. All right. So for guys like Mel Kuyper and, you know, uh, the, the, the draft gurus, experts that are working for TV stations out there. They do a lot of hard work. I respect them. Um, I have nothing against them. But, you know, I think we put a little bit too much credence into what they say. To me, the Alex Leatherwood draft makes sense. And I've talked to people in the NFL who feel it makes sense. Will it work? We're going to see. But to just label it as a mistake uh, right off the bat, because Mel Kuyper said so, I think is ridiculous. So uh, anyway. Uh, hey, Vinny, I've got something to add to give ESPN some praise. This okay. website's great. I mean, me paying for ESPN Plus, I, I didn't even know what I had all this. But Mike Clay, our guy Mike Clay, friend of the show, he in his top 25 offseason additions, you know, mm-hmm. you know, pickups from the offseason, the Raiders are in there twice, 8 and 23, picking all up right. Yannick Ngakwe. And number 23, I think it is. Let me keep scrolling. Let me keep scrolling. Yes, Casey Hayward. How oh, okay. Nice. See, all right. so, I mean, you know, it's not all bad. No, no, no. no. And, some and national media is giving the Raiders at least some credit. Yes, uh, and, you know, it does It does balance uh, balance it out. I think Casey Hayward, um, well, we talked about Yannick Ngakwe. Uh, we're talking now about Casey Hayward. He was in Bill's, Bill Williamson's Tier 2. And uh, the interesting thing for me is, all right, um, where does Casey Hayward end up playing? Is Does he take Damon Arnett's job in, uh, at a perimeter cornerback position, uh, or does he slide inside as a slot cornerback, or does he come in, you know, just as uh, in, in nickel packages, which you're playing so much nowadays uh, anyway, when you go to three cornerbacks, four cornerbacks, whatever the case might be. So we'll see where, where, where it uh, kind of shakes out uh, for Casey Hayward, but I would expect that he's going to be on the field uh, quite a bit, a leader uh, in that backfield, uh, in that secondary. John Brown, we talked about him last segment. You know, uh, where does he fit in if Henry Ruggs and Brian Edwards uh, take big steps forward? good problem to have if you're the Raiders. Uh, and then Alex Leatherwood, I think he's going to start day one. Very interested, fascinated, really, to see how he holds down that fort. They need him to play at a high level. 
now, like right this second, not this second, literally. Uh, September was at 13th uh, when they opened the season against the Baltimore Ravens. He needs to be ready to go, period. In Tier 3, um, Bill Williamson over at silverandblackpride.com. Tier 3, Bill has wide receiver Willie Sneed, center Nick Martin, defensive tackle Solomon Thomas, defensive tackle Quinton Jefferson, defensive tackle Darius Phylon, safety Carl Joseph, and safety Tyree Gillespie. Now, what I like about this is that that's a lot of players right there, okay? That every single one of them, short of maybe Nick Martin, we'll see how that plays out. Um, He's in competition with uh, Andre James for the starting center job. But Nick Martin has started more than 70 games and played at a fairly high level, by the way. Uh, at, at, um, he's played guard before. He's started 70-some-odd games at center for the Houston Texans. He's played guard, has some guard in his history. Um, he's a good offensive lineman. He's a, definitely an NFL-worthy offensive lineman. So if he doesn't win the starting you know, center job, Number one, he becomes kind of a super sub as backing up Andre James and being probably the first guard off the bench, maybe. You also have John Simpson. So, you know, the depth, I think, of the offensive line, uh, uh, on the offensive line, I know that Sam Young struggled at times last year. He's a, a depth piece as well. They just, the Raiders just brought him back. But, you know, the expectation for Sam Young isn't to start seven games or play the – I think he played 11 games last year. That's that's not what you want. What you're doing with your swing tackle or in that position is, you know, if he needs to get out there for a game or two uh, or come in in relief during the dur- during a game, he's going to hold his own. He's No one's expecting Sam Young uh, to be Jonathan Ogden out there. Um, but – He's more than capable of holding his own. There's some flaws in his game. That's why he's a reserve player. But as a reserve player, he's not a bad option to have. So when you start thinking about Nick Martin and, you know, John Simpson and uh, Sam Young, and we'll see what happens with uh, Jared Jones-Smith and and, uh, and, and Brandon Parker, uh, that other tackle spot, reserve spot. Not a bad some, – there's some depth there to that Raiders defensive line. But when you talk about Willie Sneed, Solomon Thomas, Quinton Jefferson, Darius Phylon, Carl Joseph, and Tyree Gillespie, you're talking about guys that are probably going to be on the field quite often. They're going to have a role on this team. Now, this is Tier 3, um, and there's quite a few players in that tier that are going to be helpful additions for this Raiders team. And it's interesting – and then another tip of the hat, tip of the cap to Bill Williamson for bringing up Tyree Gillespie, who, by the way, this is what Bill Williamson wrote. I think the fourth pick, for the, uh, note, note that I put Gillespie here. I think the fourth round pick has a chance to play right away as a rookie. What did we talk about yesterday? Remember when I said that I was doing some, you know, not detective work, I was just doing my job. You know, uh, asking some questions from people who should know. (laughs) And as part of that exercise, got kind of an interesting response about a question. I was still trying to figure out who the two safeties are, who the two starting safeties are. 
well, kind of thought that it was going to be Trevon Morig and Jonathan Abram pretty much etched in stone. That might not be the case. And that got me to thinking about Tyree Gillespie. How's Tyree Gillespie doing? And some of the feedback about Tyree Gillespie is definitely showing up and starting to handle the mental side of things. There's a huge expectation. There, there is an expectation, I should say. I don't want to qualify it one way or another, huge, big, whatever. There is an expectation, a hope, a confidence that Tyree Gillespie, the fourth-round pick from Missouri, is going to really show up when the pads get put on. And remember one thing about Tyree Gillespie. I urge you guys to go uh, look at the uh, the videotape of him at, at, at Missouri. It's like he brings a physicality to the position without question. He is not afraid of contact. And so Bill Williamson saying that he thinks that uh, Gillespie has a chance to get on the field as a rookie pretty early kind of jives with what I'm hearing as well in terms of somebody that's putting his best foot forward and somebody that could work his way onto the field early. Not saying he's going to be the starting cornerback. I still believe Jonathan Abram and Trayvon Morig uh, are going to be the starters at safety, and I think Trayvon Morig is um, can't say etched in stone, but you know he's there's high hopes for Trayvon. But Tyree Gillespie is a player to keep an eye on, as is Carl Joseph. I think this you look at that safety population now. Carl Joseph, Tyree Gillespie, Trevon Morick, Jonathan Abram. Those are four. That's a first-round pick. Two second, two first-round picks, two second-round picks, and a fourth-round pick. A young kid from uh, Missouri, Tyree Gillespie. Not too shabby when you start talking about where the safety world was for the Raiders last year, who they had out there. Uh, no disrespect to Eric Harris and Jeff Heath and those guys. Those, you know especially in, in Heath's case, serviceable player, no doubt about it. But you start looking now, a first-round pick in Carl Joseph, a first-round pick in Jonathan Abram, a second-round pick in Trevon Morig, who should have been a first-round pick had he not had a little back issue uh, at his pro day. Uh, so that's really, really, you're, thinking, you're talking about three first-round picks uh, among three of the safeties. And then Tyree Gillespie, who uh, a fourth-round pick that the Raiders are really high on, see, could get on the field pretty early. That's not a bad look at safety right now. That's a pretty deep uh, population there at safety. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor brought to you by Tequila and Bahama. You're listening to Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. Now back to your host, Vinny Bonsignor. By the way, I just got a text from uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, heard me talking about where you could get Embajador uh, tequila and had mentioned some of the casinos. Uh, Aliante uh, is one of them. But Aliante, I have been told, has a great restaurant called Salt and Lime. Uh, Salt and Lime restaurant, and they have Embajador tequila. So um, make sure you, uh, when you are at Salt and Lime at Aliante, uh, make sure you uh, sip on a little bit of Embajador tequila while you're there. You know, it was Prince's birthday. I think it was yesterday, wasn't it? <sighs> Do you guys ever tell you the story about uh, it was a 2016 draft, and it was in Chicago. The Rams had just gotten back 
to Los Angeles. They traded all the way up for, I think, the number 15 pick to the number one pick, uh, which they ended up drafting Jared Goff. Um, so, obviously, the team I cover is going to have the first pick overall. That player is going to be in Chicago. Get on a plane, go to Chicago, right? And I think three days before that, Prince passes away. Just devastating. Uh, well, my wife ends up coming out to Chicago with me and um, or joining me on that uh, on that trip. And so after the draft wraps up, we have an extra day in Chicago. And we said, you know what? We're renting a car and we're going to drive to Minneapolis and we're going to go pay our respects to Prince. We drove from Chicago to Minneapolis. I can't, eight hours, nine hours, something like that in it was cold. It was in April. It was cold. Um, but we get to Minneapolis. The first place we go is to his club, Prince's Club, uh, in downtown Minneapolis. And sure enough, there were, you know, all kinds of people there, all kinds of, um, you know, remembrances, flowers. Uh, it was it was touching. And, um, you know, it was just it kind of took your breath away a little bit. Um, the love and support. And you got to understand, Prince is from Minneapolis and uh, grew up in Minnesota. So he's like literally a local son, like the local hero. And uh, you could see that. And, and, you know, you can tell the club, by the way, is First Avenue uh, in downtown Minneapolis. Downtown Minneapolis, beautiful city, by the way. If you're ever in that neck of the woods, Go check out Minneapolis, one of the underrated uh, cities in our country, I believe. So um, took a side tour to go uh, check out the Vikings Stadium, by the way. I have a friend who works for the Vikings, and it was the year – it was a few months before uh, the, the stadium was going to open up. And so uh, he said, hey, if you're in town, I'll give you a tour. That was very cool. By the way, Prince was supposed to open up that stadium. They had a, Everything was planned out. Prince was going to be the concert that opened up. Uh, the new Vikings stadium. Obviously, that didn't happen. Heard some funny, a funny Prince story, and when we have a little bit of extra time, at some other point, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you that story. Actually, how many? How long do we have, Devon? Five minutes. Okay, I, I could tell this really quick. By the way, we ended up at Paisley Park, and it was just an unbelievable scene. Every. Every type of person that you can possibly think of, every color, every creed, every religion, people from Minneapolis, people from around the world uh, had, had come out to Paisley Park to pay their uh, respects to Prince. All right. So uh, uh, my friend with the Vikings, um, pretty high up with the Vikings, right? Prince, as it turns out, was a huge Vikings fan. He's a huge fan of Minnesota sports. He's a local son and uh, is very proud, was very proud of, of where he grew up. So it was the year where Brett Favre was the quarterback of the Vikings, 2009, I think it is, and the Vikings are starting to get on a roll, right? And they're playing really well. It looks like they're going to be one of the better teams in the NFL, maybe even make a Super Bowl run, which, by the way, they almost did. They got you know beat in New Orleans. Don't need to revisit that. Anyway, a couple weeks before the playoffs, I think it was, uh, the Vikings get a call from somebody associated with Prince, inviting my friend and a couple of the other Viking staffers uh, out to Paisley Park. Hey, would you like to come out? Uh, Prince wants to talk to you guys. And everyone's like, what are you kidding? Of course. Um, 
were there. So they show up and Prince literally answers the door at Paisley Park. And uh, it was kind of funny what he was wearing, the heels and everything like that. They've noticed that first of all. But they get in there and they're talking to Prince and it's just like a normal conversation. This season's going great, man. I'm so into this season, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, um, and, and it's just, it's a normal conversation with Prince and everybody's in awe. And these are high up in the Viking organization. They're in awe. So um, it's going well. The conversation's going great. And Prince says, hey, um, would you guys mind, you know, do you want to stick around for dinner? And they're like, yes. I mean, yes. So they have dinner. It's, it's, everything's going great, you know. And so finally Prince says to them, hey, listen, um, I've written kind of a fight song for the Raiders – excuse me, for the Vikings. And, um, you know, I, I think it would be great to, to have a, this Vikings, uh, you know, fight song that I've written. And they're all kind of looking at each other, the Viking people, and they're like – Oh, that's, it was a little bit of a surprise. That's, that's great. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, uh, hey, I, I, can, I can play it for you right now. If you, and they're like, what are you going to do? Say no? Yeah, okay, great. Prince plays the fight song. And somewhere out there, if you Google Prince's Vikings fight song, there's a copy of it out there, okay? And if you listen to it, you'll understand the reaction from the Vikings people, which was, this is not good. It's not good. It just doesn't fit. There's this, uh, you know, but Prince is, you know, playing it for them and he finishes up and they don't really have the heart to tell him that it's really not that good. And and so he's like, well, what do you guys think? And they're like, oh, well, you know, and they're just trying to sort of dance around it. And uh, they're like, well, maybe we could put it on our website. We could put up a van. They're trying to figure out any way to tell Prince it's just really not it's not, it doesn't fit, you know, it's not, it's not that good. But can you imagine being in that position where this artist who's done nothing but gold standard work his entire career, the one thing that he does that's probably not up to par was a Vikings fight song that just didn't, it it didn't work. Um, So anyway, it never really saw the light of day. I don't know if they ever even played it at the Vikings stadium. Prince would come to games and there was, by the way, if the Vikings had won the Super Bowl that year, and remember they lost to the New Orleans Saints in the championship game, that was bounty hunt, all that craziness with the Saints, there was going to be a Super Bowl party for the Vikings at Paisley Park, hosted by Prince. Imagine if that had happened. So uh, anyway, just that's the Prince Vikings song. Uh, everything that, about that night was great, except for the song that Prince wrote for the Vikings that just didn't go over very well. I want to say thanks to Demond Cotton, uh, our great producer, for making us sound really good all the time. Thanks to the callers. Really appreciate it. Thank you to the listeners. Of course, uh, you're why we do this. Uh, the numbers look strong and really good. Thank you so much. Uh, we love doing this for you guys. We'll be back at it tomorrow, 4 to 6 p.m. in the huddle. Vinny Bonsignor brought to you by Tequila and Bajador. And by the way, we'll have access to some of the players tomorrow uh, and some observations from uh, week three of the phase three of OTAs. Can't wait to get a look at what's going on. And we'll talk about it tomorrow, 4 to 6 p.m. in the huddle. Vinny Bonsignor. Bonsignor.